you're here for the first time with us, we're so thankful that you've decided to worship with us today. Uh, you know, we hope and pray that New City Church would be a space and a people where you could find healing and rest, uh, and you could just be revived in the, in the Lord and, and also delight in the Lord week after week. Um, today, uh, we're, gonna, we're beginning an 11-week trek through the book of Judges uh, in a series that we've titled The Unraveled Revival, uh, because in this book, the further we get into the book, the further we'll see God's people get away from God and His ways. Uh, it's the exact opposite of a revival. Uh, it's the picture of what happens when God's people turn away from God. Uh, and throughout the book, we'll see God's people get, well, they'll just get progressively worse. But as we get into this book, yes, we'll see an unfaithful people, but we'll also see an incredibly faithful God. Uh, and if you're kind of checking out our church, uh, if, or if you're a bit newer here, you know, something that's good for you to know about New City, our church, is that we prioritize preaching through whole books of the Bible. Like we don't come up with a message that we think you need to hear every week and then throw a few Bible verses in it to build a case for what we think. No, God has already given us the message that we need in each book of the Bible, and so we just preach that. The Bible drives the preacher. The preacher doesn't drive the Bible. There's a massive difference in this. And so what this means is that what we see is that we see what the Bible says, we teach it, we talk about it, and then we see how it affects our lives today. And as we preach through the Bible, that means we preach through the entire Bible, both the New Testament and the Old Testament. And honestly, I absolutely love preaching through the Old Testament. Um, I don't think I can say I love it more than the, the New Testament because Jesus is in the New Testament. But what I love about teaching through the Old Testament is how Jesus gives us a new lens to, to, to understand the Old Testament. We interpret the Bible from back to front and not front to back. And as Christians who have given their life, their entire life, to a man who died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we could be with God and have a relationship with him, like that, total, that, that totally affects, uh, that truth, it totally affects and breathes new life into these Old Testament books like Judges that we'll read at times and maybe think like, why are we reading this book again? Like, it seems pretty hopeless and depressing. But what we'll see week after week is how Jesus and the gospel, how it infuses hope and life into broken situations. And just as a heads up, you know, as we go through this book, we're going to cover a lot of ground each week, doing a couple chapters at a time, which means we're not going to read every verse of every chapter, but we're still going to preach expositionally, letting the Bible steer and guide our time. But today, for those who just appreciate a really simple outline, here's just a basic structure um, that we're going to kind of build out as we go, that we're going to spend most of the, the front portion, number one, teaching and story, uh, and then this, number two, application on kind of the back half. Again, I, I bring this up because um, this is how I'm likely going to preach throughout this entire series, taking 10 to 15 minutes to teach and tell the story, just so we can wrap our heads around the text and then spend the rest of our time kind of drawing out big themes um, just straight out of the text. And so, but today we're going to start reading the passage, and I'll give you a bit of a back, and then I'm, I'll give you a bit of the background to the book, and once we know where we are and get, kind of get our bearings in the Bible, then we're going to walk through the story, and then about halfway through, we're going to like come up for air, see one big idea about halfway through the sermon, and see how this all connects today. And so let's dive in by looking at the very first verse of Judges chapter 1. This is what it says. After the death of Joshua... The people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And what I want to emphasize now is, are those first few words. After the death of Joshua. 
And I bring this up because of how essential the book of Joshua is that we looked up last fall to understand the book of Judges. In fact, uh, not just the book of Joshua, but also the five books uh, before Joshua that are called the Pentateuch. You know, the book of Judges, it's not an isolated book like the book of Jonah that we, looked, we just finished last week. No, it's part, of a histor- it's part of the historical books in the Old Testament. And so maybe think of uh, this like book seven of a 17-book series. And if you want to know which book we'll do next in the Old Testament, just look at the book after Judges. But just to get us up to speed, I want to give us about a three-minute flyover of what's happened in the first six books uh, that's important to know, for th- specifically for the book of Judges. And this is kind of the, the 1A, the background to Judges. And so in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we see God create the world. Uh, but in that same book, we see God establish a special group of people that he calls Israel. And this people called Israel that God has chosen and set apart, there's, like there's really nothing special about them except for the fact that they're God's chosen people. Like we find out real quick that God's the special one, not the people of Israel. And as we saw three years ago when we preached the second book, the book of Exodus, those same people, the people of Israel, we saw that they were enslaved by the people of Egypt uh, under Pharaoh, a mean, just a mean and ruthless ruler. And through a string of God-ordained miracles, we saw God deliver them out of slavery. But in doing so, it became evident the people of Israel, after they were set free, they were just kind of wandering around uh, on their own without any land of their own. They were free but they didn't know how to live, and they also didn't know where to live. They were kind of a bit nomadic. They were kind of just wandering around, the people of Israel were. But what we see in the next three books, the book of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we see God make it clear that their obedience is essential to being a part of God's chosen people. And so at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the the second book in the series, maybe we could say, we see Israel's leader Moses, he was born. But then in the book five, the book of Deuteronomy, we see Moses die. And so throughout all of Moses' life, God makes it clear he's given his people a desired way of life. Like God teaches them how to live in a God-honoring way. And in doing so, God made it very clear if they obey God and God's way of life, it would go well for them. But if they disobey God's way of life, it would not go well for them. It's just that simple. And then after book five, we see the book of Joshua that we preached through last year, seeing that God wanted a land for God's people. He knew they were kind of wandering around and he wanted to help establish them with their own land. So God taught them how to live. But now, now we're seeing he wants to show them where to live. And so through a string of miraculous military conquests, we saw God give them their land. And how did they receive that land? Well, they simply obeyed God. They did exactly what God said to do. Again, they obeyed God and they were blessed by it. And this is important for the book of Judges. Because remember, God raised up Moses. God used Moses to lead his people and give them the law and their way of life. And then Moses died. And then God raised up Joshua, and God gave his people land through Joshua's leadership. And now in the book of Judges, we see that Joshua has died. And so this entire series progresses, and we're now left wondering, well, who's next? Like, who's God, who's God going to raise up next to lead his people now that Joshua's dead? Like, that's often how God works. He calls out a leader, he raises them up, and then he leads God's people where God tells them to go. And so let's look at verse 1 of Judges 1 again. After the death of Joshua, it says, The people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? 
And so the very first verse, we see a few things. First, Joshua, their leader, like we just said, he's now dead. And second, they're asking God, who will be their new leader? And then third, we, we see there's, there's still work to be got, done. And this is important. Like most of the land, it's been conquered, but there is still land to get. It's almost like they've, they're like 90 to 95% done of the land. Like they've gotten most of the land that God wants them to give. There's still a little bit left. And in the first chapter of Judges 1, 2b, we're seeing, we, we, we're seeing what happens with this last 5 to 10% of the land. Again, we're not going to read the whole thing, but let's just read some of it. Look at verse 2. The Lord said, the Ju- the Lord said Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So who did God appoint as their new leader? It says in verse 2, like it says, uh, it says in verse two Judah. And look at verses 3 to 6. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with them. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Can we just stop and acknowledge the strangeness of this? Like, this is a bit odd, cutting off the king's thumbs and his big toes. And I point this out because it just gives us a small taste of uh, this book. It just seems a bit odd at times. But in doing this also, just like the reason they did this at the time, um, they were basically taking the king out of war by cutting off his thumbs and his big toes. It was kind of like payback for this king because he did this to others. Um, and, and then what we would see through about, the ha- about half of chapter 1 is that they would go into battle after battle, and they were doing really well. They were having success. And then as it continues throughout chapter 1, we see more battles and more successes. Life is good. It's like they're on a massive winning streak, kind of going through the first half of chapter 1. But then look what it says in verse 19 of chapter 1. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And as we read that, it's kind of like, wait, what? I mean, we just, we just read, what we, you know, what we just read is like a massive screech in the story. It says, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Their, their string of success, it's ended. Again, it says they could not drive them out because they had chariots of iron. And the reason this is such a big deal is because if you remember in the book of, of Joshua, the walls of Jericho... Like, they literally fell down by, by them trusting God, blowing trumpets, and shouting. I mean, if you remember, in the book of Exodus, they were freed from the massive military powerhouse of Egypt, and not by their strength, but by the hand of God. And in here in verse 19, this seems extremely subtle, but to the readers at the time, they knew their history. They're thinking, like, what? This is not how this works. No, God is over everything. God fights, and he wins. God doesn't lose these battles. And what we're beginning to see here is a crack in Israel's ship. Because Judah is beginning to trust in himself and not God. Like he had several wins under his belt. And now instead of trusting in the Lord, Judah is trusting in his own military strength and his own fighting abilities. And then in verse 21, as it continues, we see that it's not just Judah, but others in Israel. This, this happened with them too. Look what it says in verse 21. 
But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites who have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So, so the tribe of Benjamin, they, they also fell short. And look what happens in verse 22 and 23. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. Like, this seems good. But then look what it says in verse 24. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. And so they found a guy to help them. And then look how the verse ends. Like this seems insignificant, but to those who, those who know God's plans and what God told them, what we're about to read is very significant. Look what it says in the middle of verse 25. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites to build a city and called his name Luz. That is the name to this day. And the reason this is so significant is because in Deuteronomy chapter 20, back in book 5 of our series, before all of these battles, God told them to get rid of everyone, to leave no one. And I know that seems odd and strange, and we'll get to, we'll get to that some, but what I want us to see is that the house of Joseph took over one city, doing it with the Lord, but then they let one guy go. And that one guy that was not following God, he went and built an, an entire another city. And then for the rest of chapter 1, we see groups of people and families that God people, they failed to fully drive out, like God asked them to do. I mean, like it's, it's like the entire second half of chapter 1, it reads like, this person failed out to drive so-and-so, these people did not drive out so-and-so, uh, this person did not drive out that person, and on and on it goes. And maybe we think, Oh, they're just being really nice. But we have to understand that with these people come foreign and false gods that God hates. Like, we must get this. The God of the Bible did not and does not want to live among other false gods. No, God is a jealous God. And so any other gods among his people, he wants totally gone. Which is why he said, get rid of all of them. And this carries into chapter 2 of verses, in verses 1 and 2. Like this is where we step into Judges chapter 2 in our story. And so right after all of this, we see kind of an angel come to them and he's reminding them of how God has brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery and given them this land. And then God reminds them of the promise that they made. And God is showing them that they broke it. They broke their end of the promise. Israel did. Like they broke this covenant. And so God, in his holiness, he must uphold his end of, of the deal and this is like much of chapter 2, reminding them that because this promise is broken, these other gods, these false gods, they will be a thorn in Israel's side. And what happens? Well, it says they cried, they wept. Like Israel realized what they had done. God was reminding them that God gave them this land and God did all this for them and that they had already forgotten it. And in verse 2, what did God say? Well, look at it. Of chapter 2 it says and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land you shall break down their altars and then it says but you have not obeyed my voice what is this you have done God said but you have not obeyed my voice 
God is saying obedience. He's reminding them obedience is essential. He's, this is the story he's been telling them. And then in verses 6 to 10 of Joshua 2, the author, he kind of gives a, a flashback uh, to Joshua, taking us back when Joshua was still alive. It shows us the contrast, saying during Joshua's day, the people served the Lord. And then down in verse 10 of chapter 2, we just see it all start to get dark. Look what it says in the second half of chapter 10. I mean, we started out at the beginning of chapter 1. They were winning Battle after battle, and then here we are, like halfway through chapter 2. Look what it says in, ch- in the second half of verse 10. And there arose another genera- generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And then look at verse 11 and 12. More darkness. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the God of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And at this point, just barely into Judges, we've, we've ar- we see God's people, they've already abandoned the Lord. They turn against God. They're worshiping these other false gods, and when they did this, they turned their back on God, and they made God their enemy. It says down in verse 15 that the hand of the Lord was against them and they were in terrible distress. And remember, God has told them that if they obey God, it will go well, with, go well for them. But if they disobey God, it would not go well with them. And here we see God keeping his promise because God, he's a promise-keeping God. And if you're brand new to Christianity, or you're just kind of checking out faith and you're here today, I want to give you a bit of hope uh, before we go any further, because what we've just read is like, this, this seems crazy. But just so you don't totally check out, thinking this is bonkers and crazy, we'll see, more, we'll see more in the end today. But when Jesus, when he comes onto the scene, he totally changes all of this. I mean, we serve, like New City, we serve an incredibly faithful God. But the tension we see and that we will continue to see is that God is perfectly holy and perfectly good and perfectly fair and that he keeps his promises and he does what he says he will do. But yet, God, he makes rules and standards and he upholds the consequences when those rules and standards are not met. In fact, as we see in our main idea today, I told you you'd be about halfway through from chapter one and two, is that God wants 100% of our life. And so if I lost you, okay, in all of that teaching, just check back in. Because this is the big idea for today. Like God doesn't ask for 50% of our life. He doesn't want 90% of our life. He doesn't even want 99% of our life. No, God wants 100% of our life. He wants every single nook and cranny of our heart and life. And as we think about this concept of God wanting 100%, I don't want to state the obvious too much, but that means that 99% is not good enough. And all week long, as I've been thinking about these two chapters, uh, uh, just kind of preparing for a baby that's coming very soon in the Hovis household, just having to totally rearrange all the rooms uh, to create space for a baby to come into our house. Now I have noticed the pitfalls of often doing things 90%. You know, in our rearrangings, we've had to go through a lot of stuff, um, which means we're getting rid of a lot of stuff, which also means we find a bunch of toys and games and puzzles that are just missing pieces. And anybody that does a puzzle knows that nothing is worse than getting all the way to the end of the puzzle and realizing you're missing one or two pieces to be found, to never be found. Like, the puzzle is incomplete. Yes, it's 99.9% finished, but yet that one piece, it's missing, and it's still incomplete. 
And when you look at that unfinished puzzle, missing that one or two pieces, at least me, I do not look at that puzzle with thankfulness. No, I look at that puzzle with just absolute annoyance and frustration. I mean, we have, like, we had several puzzles that we just threw away because they were missing not just one, but several pieces. I mean, they were nowhere to be found. So we just totally got rid of them. Because if the puzzle isn't 100% there, it's not a good puzzle. And just to add to this, I mean, I could go on and on about this, but one more. In the midst of blowing up our house, uh, trying to put it all back together, last weekend we had a plumbing issue with our dishwasher and our sink. And that plumbing issue happened because the dishwasher and disposal were installed 95% correct. Like that 5% that was wrong uh, had a wrong type of P-trap that was put in. Uh, And you know what? That P-trap that kind of goes underneath the sink, if you don't know what it is, um, it fit 95% right. Like it looked like it was right, seems like it fit right, but it's still 5% wrong. And what happened, because there was 5% wrong with our plumbing, we had a water leak all over the floor and it damaged the wood under the sink. And if I've learned anything about plumbing, it's that you cannot be 99% right with plumbing. No, you have to be 100% right with plumbing every time, which is why I don't like plumbing. But this is what God wants with us. He wants 100% of our life. He wants 100% faithfulness from us to him. And this isn't a crazy idea. I mean, just imagine if I were 99% faithful to my wife. Would my wife be happy with me? No, not at all. 100% faithful is the expectation. It's true in marriage, and it's also true in our relationship with God. And as we just saw in several different ways with Israel in Judges chapter 1 and 2, they were not 100% faithful with the Lord. No, they did several things, 90%, 95, or even 99.9%. But yet those small percentages meant they were 100% unfaithful. And so for the rest of our time, we're going to draw from our story and see a few specifics of a life that God wants us to have, like 100% devoted to the Lord, just seeing a few points of application. And the first thing we saw from Judges 1 and 2 was that 2A, God wants 100% of our trust You know, if you remember back in chapter 1, as I was telling the story, after Joshua died, God appointed Judah to finish the task. Uh, There was still land that God wanted Israel to have, and so uh, we saw Judah have success after success, much like we saw in the book of Joshua, until we got to that one verse in verse 19 of chapter 1, when it said, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And again, when we read that, it's easy to not think much of that verse, but again, for those that knew their history, this would have been glaringly obvious because they knew all that God did back in the book of Joshua, where God allowed Israel to walk through the Jordan River on dry ground, where God, I mean, he made the sun stand still, and he allowed God's people to win their battle. I mean, these are all the things that God did for Israel, just incredible, miraculous movements of God. And if you remember the book of beginning of Joshua, at the beginning of all those conquests, God told Israel to be strong and courageous, to, n- to not be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you will go. And so here they are in Judges chapter 1, and it says, He could not drive out the inhabitants because they had chariots of iron. I mean, how soon they forgot. How soon they turned away from trusting God and began to trust in their own strength. They started to win some battles and gain some land in their army. Yes, it was growing. And when this happened, they started to trust in their own strength and not the Lord. It says he could not drive out the inhabitants. But guess who could? 
God, the God that made the promise. I mean, as, and as soon as that crack was made of failing to trust the Lord and rather trusting in their own strength, everything started to become unraveled. It's almost like they started to think it was their own military strength that got them there. Because you know what? As soon as they had some success, they had some success, but as soon as they got to a point where they were outmatched, what did they do? They backed away. They struggled to do it. And I can't help but think, how easy is it for us to do the exact same thing? I mean, maybe, maybe we start out our faith, trusting in the Lord, taking steps of faith, needing to be courageous, calling out to the Lord for help, leaning on God's strength, or maybe in seasons, and some seasons, maybe not. And then all of a sudden, we learn to walk the walk and talk the talk, and we start relying on our own strength and not in God's strength. You know, when I was growing up, I went to this camp where we could go rock climbing and repelling. And the first time I went rock climbing, um, I wasn't great at it, but I also wasn't terrible. Like, I could kind of climb. I was pretty active as a kid, and so I could use my legs my arms to kind of pull me up, and I eventually made it up the wall um, on some of the easier routes. But the first time I went repelling, this was not the case. Um, I didn't, it didn't matter if I could pull myself up because I was not going to, like, I, was going, I wasn't going up. I was going down. And the first time I went repelling, they, they told me I had to go to the wall, hold the rope behind my back, and just kind of lean back, getting my legs kind of at a 90-degree angle with the wall, and then you just kind of walk down the wall, and then as you want to go down the wall, you have to kind of let the rope go as you went down. And I don't think I want to admit this, but y'all, it took me about 10 minutes to take my first step. And the entire time I was up there, they kept telling me, you got to trust the rope. you got to trust the rope. Lean back and trust the rope. And y'all, I didn't want to trust the rope. No, I wanted to climb down the wall. I didn't want to repel down the wall. I wanted to climb down the wall. And eventually I took my first jump down the wall while not trusting the rope. And what happened? Smacked into the wall. Face first. Face planted right into the wall. But eventually I got the hang of it. And I made it down the wall, repelling, learning to trust the rope. I mean, but just think, right? Like what if... Like, what, what, would happen, what, if I did, what if I had done what I wanted to do and just kind of climbed down the wall? What would I have been doing? I would have been trusting in my own strength and not trusting the rope. And so in doing that, I would have totally missed the joy of repelling. Like, I would have missed all of it. And, and that's what we see here in Judges 1. God wants us to trust him in everything. He doesn't want us to trust him with 90% of our life. No, he wants 100% of our life. And so let's just ask what area of our life are we struggling to trust the Lord? Maybe it's with a relationship. Maybe you're wanting to get into a relationship that you, maybe you know you shouldn't. Or, and may, or maybe you're struggling to trust the Lord just with, with, with relationships in any different way. Or maybe you're struggling to trust the Lord with your finances or with your future. Or maybe with a hard conversation that you know the Lord's leading you to. Or maybe to struggle to confess something or you're overwhelmed with fear and worry. I, and I can't help but think how fearful Judah would have been when they saw all of those iron chariots and having no clue how they could like, do that. And then like, they, they were like, what do we do? So they just turned around. They didn't do it. I mean, God said at the beginning of Joshua, be strong and courageous. And they did the exact opposite. And maybe the place of your life where it's hard to trust the Lord, maybe it's with forgiveness. Y'all, forgiving people, it's hard. It's not easy. But yet God commands it. Maybe it's forgiving someone that you're, you're close with. Or maybe it's forgiveness from something that happened like maybe 20 years ago and you need to forgive again and again and again. 
New City, God wants 100% of our heart and life. And so we need to ask, are we trusting the Lord with 100% of our life? Are we giving God 99% but holding on to that last 1%? Like, are we holding on to that last puzzle piece, so to speak? And so as we go through these two chapters, the the other area where we see God wants 100% is with our worship. To be, God wants 100% of our worship. Again, the reason God didn't want these other people to stay in the land was not because God didn't love those people, but because they, like he, God despised their false gods. He loved the people, but hated the false gods they served. Again, God is a jealous God who doesn't want to split our worship and devotion. Just like I expect my wife to be 100% devoted to me, God expects our 100% devotion to him and to no other gods. Like God told them to get rid of those other gods, but yet they kept them around. It's like they kept them at a safe distance. If you remember in chapter one, there was one man and his family that the house of Joseph let go. Um, They didn't do what God told them to do to get rid of 100% of the people. But no, they got rid of 99.9% and they kept that 0.1%. And what happened? That man, he went and settled and he repopulated. And idol worship, it grew. In the end of chapter one, we saw about eight or nine unfinished conquests. God's people, they didn't drive out all of these idol worshipers, but rather they just kind of let them stay. I mean, they just showed just a little bit of hospitality to these people who were opposed to God. For those, uh, maybe for those that weren't, uh, they weren't hospitable with, maybe uh, they just, they just kind of made accommodations for them, or maybe they were just a little apathetic towards them. And with that little bit of hospitality and, or, and maybe just apathy, worship of the one true God, worship of Yahweh, the Lord, it did not grow, but rather, look what it says happened. Look at, again at chapter 2, verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And look down at chapter, uh, verse 13 of chapter ten, of 2. It says, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals in Ashtaroth. They served these other false gods. Essentially, they were hospitable to these people that did not worship God. And in doing so, they themselves, they turned against God. And please hear me, okay? We're not saying don't be hospitable to people who don't worship God. No, not at all. Like, again, Jesus changes all of, all of this for us today. But what we are saying from this is that God wants 100% of our worship. He doesn't want to split our worship with anything else. And so we must ask, what things in our life are we keeping close to us that God says to put away? Like, what do we have in our life that we're tempted to worship over the Lord? God wants to be first in our life. Now let's just ask, what is easy to put before God? Maybe it's being liked. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's money or comforts or addictions. Maybe it's a relationship or our kids. Or maybe it's our kids' success. And there's so many things we can easily put as a priority before God. And an easy way just to assess this is just, maybe just look at how we spend our time and maybe how we spend our money. I mean, oh, just ask, are we making gathering with God's people a priority? Are we making time in God's word a priority? Are we making God's mission a priority? We can go on and on about this. But the point I want to make about this is based right out of the text. And when we leave a part of our life not surrendered to the Lord and we give it space to grow, that's when our worship of God becomes divided. 
Maybe it's a sin pattern or an unhealthy relationship we're giving space for, or just kind of maybe just apathetic towards. Or maybe it's something that's good but was not supposed to be ultimate. Whatever these things are, before we know it, they can end up taking more of our life than we ever hoped or dreamed of. And, and listen, it only takes a little bit of apathy for the enemy to create his little kingdom in spaces that were only meant for God which is what we saw in Judges, when they let idol worship stay in their midst. Again, God wants every area of our life totally and 100% surrendered to the Lord. And so not only does God want 100% of our trust and worship, but to see God also wants 100% of our obedience. In, in chapter 2, verse 2, again, God said, but you have not obeyed my voice. You, you know, I think it's fair to say that all the different people, all these different people in Judges, Maybe they trusted God. Maybe they even worshiped God. But yet they still didn't totally obey God. You know, maybe just thinking, well, what's the big problem with letting these other people inhabit this land with us? They're nice people. They can't, they, maybe they can help us. And why not? Let's just all work together. Maybe that's what they thought. And yet that's not what God told them to do. No, they obeyed their own desires and not God's desires. Again, God wants 100% from us, not more good than bad, not even 99%. No, God expects 100% obedience. So let's just ask, what area of your life are you struggling to obey God? And maybe if you're struggling to answer that question, let me just ask it in a different, in a different way, the same thing in a different way. Where is there sin in your life? That's what sin is. It's disobeying God. And God's expectation for us as his people is 100% perfect obedience. That's what we see here in Judges 1 and 2. That's God's standard. And maybe it's fair to say God's people were 90% obedient to God, which to me that sounds pretty good. Like that's more obedient than not. I mean, that's like a B plus or an A minus on the obedience scale. But again, what we know is that 90% isn't 100%. It's not good enough. 95% right in plumbing isn't good enough. Only having 99% of the puzzle, that's not good enough. No, it's, it's a nuisance. It needs to be tossed and thrown out. 99% faithful to my wife is 100% unfaithful. New City, again, God's expectation for us is 100% obedient in our entire life. And I don't know about for you, but for me, that just leads me to hold up my hands and say, I can't do this. It's unattainable. And I think it's easy for us to say, God, why would you do this? God, why is the standard for us so high? And the reason the standard for us is so high is, is just like, it's because God wants what's best for us. If God, uh, if God, if he wasn't perfectly holy and good, he would not require this, but yet he is. And so in God's perfect holiness, perfect holiness is the requirement because that is what is best for us. While at the same time, again, it leads us to say, but we can't do this. Like we need someone to do it for us. We need someone to make the puzzle whole because we don't have the missing piece. Which leads us to our last point saying, New City 2D, we need a deliverer. We need someone to help us and to save us. Like Israel couldn't do it. No, they needed a helper. You know, as we see in, in chapter 2 verse 16, that's what God did for Israel. I mean, Israel got plundered, it says, because of their disobedience. And look what it says in verse 16. And the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Like Israel, they messed up. They turned from God. But yet here we see the compassion of God. 
He knew they needed a deliverer. He knew they needed someone to like fix the plumbing problem or to find the last puzzle piece, so to speak. And over and over again throughout the book of Judges, we see God raise up a rescuer and a deliverer and a judge to help them and to save them from their enemies. And yet look what it says they do in verse 17. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from, which, from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. God pursued them, but they rejected them. And it wasn't just once or twice, but multiple times. Like God tried to finish the puzzle, but they didn't want it. And this is the continuous cycle throughout the entire book. It says in chapter 2, verse 9, the people, like it just says they just kept getting worse. I mean, God sent a rescuer, but it doesn't last. It's almost like they're replacing the miss, missing puzzle piece, piece with pieces just, just don't really match. Like it kind of works. They're trying to jam it in there, but it's just not right. It's not working. It's still incomplete. So much so that it says in verse 23, look what it says. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. It says God just left. He got angry and left. And honestly, he was right in doing this. He, he was a righteous anger. He, they kept turning on God. And so what did he do? It just says he left them. But as we know, he did not, le- did not, la- he did not leave them for a, forever. It was a time, for a time, but not forever. No, because the tension we see in judges of God's perfect holiness and God's perfect standard, it is, it is reconciled with Jesus. Because church, the good news of the gospel tells us when Jesus came onto the scene, he met the 100% standard that we could not and cannot meet. He showed perfect trust and perfect worship and perfect obedience. And you know why God sent Jesus for us? He didn't send Jesus just to complete our puzzle. No, he sent Jesus to give us an entirely new puzzle. He, 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 came to be, he came to be a far better puzzle in himself. Jesus didn't come to be the last 10% or 50% or 90% that we couldn't do. No, Jesus came to be the 100% for us. Jesus essentially said, I am your new puzzle. You know, when Jesus came, lived 100% right with the Lord, he met the standard for us. And then when he went to the cross, he washed away all of our disobedience and all of our idol worship and lack of trust. And then he gave us his perfect obedience. That's grace. His perfect worship and perfect trust. He gave it all to us. When we believe in him, when we say, God, take my life, that's what we gain. And so today, when we come to God, yes, he still expects 100% of our trust and worship and obedience. But because of Jesus and the gospel, the punishment we see in judges, the wrath that we see in this book, and then, and then God just kind of leaving them, New City, because of Jesus, that does not happen. No, all of this punishment, it went to Jesus on the cross. You know, Jesus flips judges on its head and says, yes, I still expect 100% of your life. I still want that because that is what's best for you. But you know what? When we mess up, the gospel tells us, Jesus, he will not leave us ever. He will not forsake us and he will stay with us. And he says to us, get back up. I'm still here. Keep going. Church, Jesus, every day, he comes to us and says, you've taken that part of your life, you've taken it right back into your hands, but I'm here for you to let that last piece of your life just find rest in my hands. He wants all of it. He just says to us, I'm here again for you to give it to me. 
I'm here to help you and to heal you and to make you whole. You don't have to do this in your own strength. No, call out to me. Come to me, and we'll do this in God's strength. Yes, God still holds a very high standard for us. He wants all of our worship and all of our trust and all of our obedience, but the good news of the gospel tells us that in Jesus, it is fulfilled. While at the exact same time, (laughs) through the power and the blood of Jesus, it will one day be totally fulfilled in us. Because right now, we're still a work in progress. Like Both of these are true at the same time. And so I don't know where you are today, but I know this. Jesus, he wants your entire life. Jesus wants us to daily, uh, he wants to remake you and me and mold you and me into a new creation. And so let's just ask again, what area of our life are we holding on to that Jesus doesn't have? We all have something. What's that last 1%, 5%, 10%, 50%, whatever it is. The beauty of the gospel tells us that we can bring it to Jesus. We don't have to clean it up first. No, just rest it in Jesus' hands. And when we do that, Jesus, he does not shame us. He does not blame us. And he will not leave us. No, he simply says, thank you. You're loved. You're mine. I'm proud of you. Find rest in me today. Just delight in my presence. You know, whatever God is pressing in in your heart that's not handed over to the Lord, just that last part of your life, your entire life, would you give it to him today? Would you simply just cry out to the Lord and surrender it to him? And in doing that, I want to encourage you, just bring others around you in the process. This is what the church is for. Walking with Jesus, this is not a solo event. This is a community project. New City, Jesus wants all of us. He didn't die on the cross for 90% of our life. No, he died for 100% of it. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. You're so patient with us. You're so generous and gracious with us. God, we all have pieces of our life that are we just kind of hold on to. God, I don't know what it is. We all have different parts, God, but whatever it is, whatever you're pressing on in the hearts of each one of us today, that, that 1%, that 5%, that part that's hidden, God, will we just turn it over to you? Say, God, take it all. God, you're so good to us. We need your help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.